I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. With us here is Hoy. Hello. Hey. And uh, I'm Jeff. And today we are going to discuss Fritz Leiber's Swords and Deviltry. This is going to be a fun one, folks. Yeah, this is great. So from the back of the book, we have, Here is the legendary epic of how the greatest heroes in the annals of fantasy met for the first time. Fafford, the white-furred princeling of the barbaric cold waste. The Grey Mouser, a wizardling of the whitest magic. Little did they realize, as they suspiciously eyed each other one night in murky Linkmar, that they were two long-sundered, matching halves of a greater hero. That they would be comrades through, through a thousand quests and a hundred lifetimes of adventures. Swords and deviltry. Get some. <laughs> so this book is, uh, was printed in 1970. It's uh, an ace paperback. The one that I hold in my hand is the 1973 second printing. It's got a cover by Jeff Jones. Terrific cover, maybe from the last story. It could just be setting the mood, though. Yeah, possibly. It looks like it's it's Mouser, and he's standing in front of a potential fog, and there's this figure rising out of the mist. Right. Could be an evil wizard, could be a demon, not clear. The sword is distinctly not uh, Mouser's sword, though. It's definitely a little bit too big for... Uh, the ones he normally carries, but I think it, maybe it's the only way to make it read in an illustration. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So, like last episode with the Conan stories, these were printed in the internal chronology. Mm-hmm. Although I believe in this case uh, it was uh, Fritz Leiber's decision to do so, or certainly in conjunction with his editor, as opposed to someone coming in after the fact. That's true. So with with Conan, a lot of it's uh, conjecture mixed in with that letter he wrote, whereas with Fafford and Grey Mouser, you've got the actual author saying, nope, this is the order these stories happened in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although uh, there are some uh, purists, well, let me not say we're purists. There are certain people who prefer the uh, publication order because they feel it gets you at the essence of Fafford and the Grey Mouser more directly. And I would say I have not read the Fafford and Grey Mouser stories in, in the order in which they were published. However, the first time that I read the Conan stories, I was reading them in the Dell paperback form in which they're published in publication order, and I much preferred reading it in that order. And I know that Michael Curtis, who is currently putting together the Lankmar box set for Dungeon Crawl Classics, also suggests reading them in publication order, the Fafford and Grey Master stories. He suggests reading them in publication order instead of the order in which they were presented in these books. And I recall reading these books um, as a youngin, and I don't think I was aware of exactly which order that they should be read in. Um, I had to do a little detective work because they're not as obviously numbered as the Conan books on the cover. That's true. And... um... Hoy, what was your introduction to Fafford and Greymaster? How did you find out about them? Uh, not Appendix N, but actually, uh, like uh, my introduction to much of Appendix N literature, was actually uh, 1980 Deities and Demigods. Mm. Um, there was an amazing chapter on the Nuan Mythos with uh, Janelle Jackway's illustrations in there. That is how I sought out the Fafford and the Greymaster, and uh, through uh, Deities and Demigods, I also sought out the... Uh, Michael Moorcock, Mulnaboni series, and the Cthulhu Mythos books. And so in many ways, that was my launching pad towards the Appendix N fiction. Yeah, and the Fafford and Grey Master stories were some of the only ones that I had also read prior to starting the Appendix N. And really, I just had a friend who suggested that I read them. And I read the first two or three, I don't recall which, and I've really enjoyed them. And I'm looking forward to working my way through the rest of them. Right. I had not read these since, again, probably junior high school, so it was uh, quite fun to get back into these. Uh, I'm currently reading the, uh, I've had them for years, I just haven't read them, the White Wolf hardcover collections, which collects uh, two of the novels at a time and have nice uh, Mike McNola uh, cover, a dust jacket, um, Mike McNola and of Hellboy fame, and uh, Howard Chaikin actually also did a graphic novel adaptation, uh, which is still in print and it's worth seeking out. 
Um, and also specifically Swords and Deviltry is still available in print in various anthology forms and in um, open road media has a ebook and a uh, trade paperback copy that's available as well. There's also a, an omnibus collection of them, the first book of Lankmar and the second book of Lankmar, which collects all of the stories as well. So there, there are many ways in which you can get these stories. It does seem as though all of the collections are collections of these collections. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Of Swords and Deviltry and such, not as yes. just uh, a, a collection of the stories in uh, publication order, as we mentioned. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they all seem like no matter how you find them, they're, 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 as far as I know, they're all published in this internal chronology, not in the... I'm not aware of any anthology that collected them and printed them in publication order. No, if there is, it's probably some very highfalutin small press that's, you know, even more purist than the purest of purists. (laughs) So if you did want to read the stories the way that Michael Curtis suggests, you would need to have all of the books and then read through them in the order in which they're published. Again, fortunately, they are readily available. Um, The two books of Lankmar collections have all the stories, and that's two handy trade paperbacks. Uh, The White Wolf ones are out of print. Um, but can be found, and then the open road, uh, either in trade paperback or the ebook format. Um, ebook format's uh, particularly handy because you can switch from book to book quite readily. Before we head on over to the library to discuss the book some more, we're going to share with you our word of the day. Malodorous. Malodorous. And just what does that mean, Jeff? Well, first, I'd like to share with you the sentence in which it's used. Villas and I were at least competitors, and so perhaps fair game by civilization's malodorous standards. But he had never even suspected us of thievery. Malodorous means stinky. Stinky. <laughs> and Smells bad. Do we have a high gagaxian use of that word at any point, or does it just seem appropriate? I'm, I'm, I don't personally know of any, but it just seems like it's a nice high gagaxian word. High gagaxian. That's a good, uh, <laughs> that's a good uh, new uh, coining of phrase. I think we can use that. It might be a yeah. little bit more convenient than I like high gagaxian. Yeah, save us a syllable. There you go. <laughs> so now we can head on over to the library. So in the book here, we have four stories. We have induction, and induction really is just like a page and a half, uh, but it really does set the tone nicely. And the very first sentence of induction, I feel like I just, I have to read. Go for it. Sundered from us by gulfs of time and stranger dimensions, dreams the ancient world of Nawan with its towers and skulls and jewels, its swords and sorceries. And in it basically... Fritz Library just kind of lets you know a little bit about what the world looks like um, and who's populating this world. It's a page and a half version of Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age. <laughs> and uh, I find it in many ways uh, more evocative and, and telling of what we're going to get in the rest of the package. I completely agree. And it's a really great example of how less can really be more. You know, you've got a page and a half of just really just like sopping wet with inspiration. Um, Yeah, it's really stunning stuff. Then there are three short stories that follow it. The first is Fafford's origin tale, The Snow Women. Uh, The third is Grey Mouser's origin tale, The Unholy Grail. And the fourth is kind of their first official meeting, which is Ilmet and Lankmar. And each of these have a little synopsis in the table of contents that I can quickly read through. Number one, induction of another world and of how the stranger uh, of how the stranger met the stranger and found they were related. Two, the snow women of the ice magic of women and of a cold war between the sexes, setting forth the predicament of a resourceful youth ringed by three masterful women together with pertinent information on father-son love, the bravery of actors, and the courage of fools. The third one, The Unholy Grail, a fictional discourse on the relations of a hedge wizard with acolytes of both sexes, joined with insights on the use of hate as an engine, and containing the only true account of how Mouse became the Grey Mouser. And finally, Ilmet and Lankmar, the second and decisive meeting of Fafford and, and the Grey Mouser, wherein something is told of the ills of unending night smog and organized thievery, of the drunkenness and vanity of beloved men and girls, 
and the mazy wonders and horrors of the city of seven score thousand smokes. Those are great. So evocative. Yeah. So what did you think of these 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 stories, Hoy? I think there is a, a tremendous amount to sort of pull from. I think uh, just purely as reading, they're terrific. The Fritz Leiber is a terrific prose stylist. As in terms of characterization, I think he's um, quite witty, and and you can see that a lot of times he's pulling forth some of the foibles of the characters, uh, Fafford and the mouse in particular, but all the surrounding characters as well. Um, so he's not putting his his protagonists up on a pedestal, unlike some fantasy writers. And then, of course, when they finally meet, uh, and in Ilmet and Lankmar, you have one of the introductions to the all-time great settings and environments, uh, both literary and for gaming inspiration. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's um, that's a, there's a lot to unpack here. And it's actually a relatively slim volume. I think it's maybe not more than 160 pages in most forms. Or yeah, let's see. The cop- actually, the copy I have here is 254 pages. In paperback, okay. In the hardcover, I think it's maybe 160 worth it. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and um, again, interestingly, these were written after the bulk of the... Well, I shouldn't say after the bulk, but after the Fafford and Grey Master stories had already sort of made their reputation. Um, and so I guess this was a way of reintroducing them sort of for the paperback era. Um, so I believe Unholy Grail was in 1962 and was actually not originally a Grey Master story, but it was repurposed as a Grey Master story. And um, Snow Women and Ilmet and Lankmar, I believe, were written specifically for paperback publication in 1970. I believe you're correct there. Yeah. So looking at this... It's interesting doing this episode immediately after the Conan episode because there, there are a lot of similarities and there are a lot of uh, differences. But looking at the world of Nawan and looking at the world in which Conan lives, it's similar in that, as we were discussing before, there, there are a lot of analogous connections to our world, Nawan being Europe. Uh, you've got your Mingles to the east or... Right. Um, Mongols or steppe warriors of various types, right? Exactly. And it's very much, it seems like the same kind of general techno- technological level, the same kind of culture level. But can you see Conan in this world or Fafford and Greymaster in Conan's world? How, in which ways do they work together? In which ways are they different? Well, they clearly uh, belong uh, foursquare in the swords and sorcery genre, which uh, I believe actually Fritz Leiber is the person who even coined that term in the first place. So in that sense, uh, they fit together quite well. But uh, magic is um, much more... uh, Front and center is not quite the right word, but much more prevalent Mm -hmm. in this world. And accessible. Uh, And accessible. That people know that there is such a thing as magic and that there's various... Uh, characters uh, have access to magic. It's not just sort of the big bad in yeah. the story. It's not quite water deep where you have magic shops on every corner and people are, you know, walking around with their floating balls of light if it gets dark. Um, but it's not like Conan where the only people who are wielding magic are people who've made dark packs with unknown entities. Right. Uh, you know, in the gaming uh, situation, and we'll talk more about that later, uh, magic is usually clearly just a replacement for technology. People really are not really wanting a true medieval setting. They're really looking for a sort of uh, Victorian, early 20th century setting, but with all the electrical stuff taken out and then just magic, you know, continual light spells, uh, you know, good plumbing, you know. Nobody (laughs) wants to hear about slop piles and dung unless you're playing DCC because DCC is all about the gong farmer. (laughs) um, But certainly in in that regard, I see them uh, fitting together, as we said, the the general technological level, but the magic is much more front and center. Mm And the tone is very different. Uh, incredibly different. I mean, I think the humor, the, mm-hmm. again, we talked about last episode how Conan is portray- portrayed as being mirthful, but in fact, the stories are not particularly uh, display any sense of humor, whereas mm-hmm. the, the humor is ever present. Uh, but not Absolutely. But not in sort of that kind of aren't I clever way that you sometimes see in the, the El Sprague de Camp uh, stories. And I, we don't want to make this a podcast about, uh, you know, uh, bad-mouthing El Sprague de Camp because there's, there's plenty more of his works we'll be going through and we're going to look at each work on its own terms. But this is just sort of our initial impressions of these writers and their styles. Oh, but, sure. Because looking at Fafford and Grey Master, none of them are jokesters like Harold Shea. Right. Uh, however, they are, they're, they're, they're fun and they're funny and they're kind of goofy and they're getting drunk and having kind of silly adventures together. Um, but it's also not just played for laughs. Like they're just kind of people who are having a good time doing what they're doing. Absolutely. I like also in particular the, uh, portrayal of Fafford as being, um, a character who's quite curious and interested 
here he is in the you know the snowy lands of the north, and uh, it's a highlight of his year when the you know the people from the south come up with a theatrical troupe, and he's always querying them about what's going on in the lands of civilization. Um, so that in that regard, he's sort of um, quite different from Conan. Conan is you know moves through civilization, but doesn't really have any particular use for it, mm-hmm. whereas Fafford's uh, continually fascinated by it. Yeah, they're both barbarians from the far north who've come south to come to civilization. But Fafford not only is going... Fafford yearns for civilization. Fafford feels like there's something that he can learn there, and that's where he belongs. He sees the way that they're living in the the cold, frozen north, and that's not the life that he wants. And on on some level, Conan also, like, he's seeking greatness and fortune or whatever... But Conan's merely putting up with civilization, where Fafford is seeking civilization. Right. And in sense, some sense, Conan is not, um, he's seeking the rewards, but there's not sort of this sort of interiority, uh, personal fulfillment aspect. Uh, at least we certainly never see that in the fiction, whereas with Fafford, you're um, much more aware of his sort of, uh, Fafford and the mouse, uh, of their psychology. Clearly, that's just a difference between, uh, I think, uh, now having read a little bit of Liber and a little bit of... Um, uh, Howard, uh, their views on the world and, and what they're fascinated by. And it is telling that uh, Liber came from a, a well-known theatrical dynasty. And um, so he was very much into the creation of character. Um, and it was an actor himself. And um, oftentimes he's very much into sort of the theatricality and uh, not just by showing actors in his stories, but in a couple of other stories, you'll see that they they almost feel like they're meant to be plays or, or little film sets. And I, I feel like you can hear the author's voice a lot in the way that Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber describe their characters and their setting. You know, I don't know where, do you, do you know where Fritz Leiber lived? Um, I believe a good part of his life was in Chicago, but he was all over. I know that his, uh, he was in Southern California for a good portion. Um, he studied in New York for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not know where he was born, but I think his father had a traveling theatrical troupe, so he had exposure through a good part of the country. He was also in uh, New Jersey for a portion of his uh, time. He was actually a uh, seminarian. He actually was a uh, uh, Episcopal uh, priest. Not quite the right word, but he was actually uh, a deacon or a pastor for a year and a half, according to one of the introductions in his books here. Really? I had no idea. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. And that completely lines up with what I was about to say, what my theory was, because Robert E. Howard is somebody who, you know, lived his whole life in a small town in Texas and doesn't really seem like Robert E. Howard personally has any desire for the big cities of America. And then you've got Fritz Leiber, who does seem to be getting a lot of, uh, finding a lot of joy and excitement by going to New York and San Francisco and Chicago and living in these places and visiting these places. So I, I, I feel like you can hear a lot of Fritz Leiber's voice in Fafford and Robert E. Howard's voice in Conan. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. In fact, um, it is mentioned because actually Fafford and the Grey Mouse were uh, co-creation, although Fritz Leiber wrote, I think, 95% plus of the Fafford and Grey Mouse stories. But they were co-created with his good friend Harry Otto Fisher. And uh, Harry Otto Fisher might have been the person who actually first sort of introduced the Mouser. And he... Uh, I think was more closely associated with uh, the Mouser, whereas uh, Fafford is maybe more of a Liber analog in terms of their relationship and that their interplay together. Um, and I believe that uh, both of them actually were also had studied fencing too. So that's actually kind of interesting. <laughs> and that may have been how they became friends. Um, interesting. So, And that's interesting because also while I was reading it, especially, uh, I should say, while I was reading The Snow Women specifically, I was thinking... Man, like I, I feel like this has to be Fritz Leiber talking about his own kind of escape from from his home, you know, because like here he is, like Fafford is surrounded by these these oppressive women, you know, his his mother won't let him go. He has got this woman who is now pregnant, who's who who wants him to marry her, and you've, you've got like these female forces that are like trying to pen him in. And he's like fighting against that and he wants to be free and he ends up like escaping their clutches in the end. Uh, but I, like while reading it, I'm just like, wow, I feel like Fritz Leiber had some uh, serious uh, uh, female uh, <laughs> forces that he may have been running from in his in his early years. 
he's certainly drawing on something that's quite strong. So if that, <laughs> if, if it's not biographical, then he must have had some very good sources. Um, <laughs> it's interesting in that, uh, again, I I'm, don't claim to be an expert here. And the, to the extent that I've read anything about Fritz Leiber, they do not mention his mother. They do mention his father because his father was quite famous as an actor and that he did actually act in some of his father's plays, uh, even made a few small Hollywood bit part performances uh, before moving on to becoming a writer. S- certainly he, as a young adult, so certainly he had a continuing relationship with his father. Um, and uh, I believe that's a theme within the Snow Women about his absent father, mm-hmm. uh, Fafford's absent father yeah. there. So uh, certainly you would say that there's some element of uh, autobiographical uh, knowledge there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating story. I do like the Snow Women quite a bit. Um, again, it's later in the... It was written in 1970 again, all right? Yep. I believe. Mm-hmm. So, the same uh, year that the book was published. Right. So certainly it's not from the sort of um, angst of youth that he was writing this story. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's drawing not on just his own experience there. But it, it's a great story. It's, it's, it's quite witty. Um, this battle of the sexes uh, that's played out in this story is um, fascinating, but it certainly doesn't make it that the you know the women are you know villains and aliens and not understandable. I think they, they just have things that they need to have happen on their own terms, and that Fafford is, you know, basically uh, a young kid who's just sort of chafing at his restraints. You know. Yeah, and his mother definitely is one of the two main villains of the story. Him and Hurst Milo, and uh, you know his mother. Although she is a villain in the story and she's literally using magic to prevent him from leaving and pursuing his own life, it's it's also a kind of villain that I feel like people can relate to. Uh, and I don't mean that in a in a way that like, you know, oh man, aren't moms horrible? That's not what I'm saying. I, I, Although if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but what I'm saying is I think... I think we can all kind of relate with the idea of even if we don't have children ourselves of of the idea that it is really scary. The idea of your children leaving the nest and going out on their own. And there's this desire to, like, keep them and protect them. And as as long as my child is within my reach and under my control, they will be safe. So it's a kind of villain that that is a relatable villain. Absolutely. And she is not, um, you know, frothing at the mouth. It's it's a control thing from her, her yeah. standpoint. Although she did probably kill her... Her husband. Yeah. <laughs> so there is some, like, genuine well, villainy may, in well, there, maybe too. Well, maybe Addie Cummings. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he just uh, hogged the blankets. <laughs> but Vlana is a really badass woman. And Vlana in the story... Uh, so as, as Hoy mentioned earlier, there's this traveling group of actors who come to the to Cold, cor- Cold Corner? Is that Cold Corner, is? I believe, yeah. yes. Come to Cold Corner. And in this case, Vlana is one of them, and she is a culture dancer. And uh, Fafford is instantly taken by her and very fascinated with uh, who she is and what he can learn from her. And ultimately, the story is that he wants to leave the t- he wants to leave town with her. His mother is against it. Uh, the woman who he's been uh, dating and is now pregnant is against him leaving. Um, but it's about him wanting to leave anyways. Uh, but Vlana is like this like pretty badass woman who had been a thief in Lankmar, had crossed the Thieves Guild, and they ended up killing her partner, and she fled before she could be before she would be killed by them. But she's definitely somebody who like she's throwing daggers around. She's very capable and strong and clever, uh, and and a real survivor. Absolutely, I think she's a, a definitely a, a good archetype of a character who is not necessarily a sort of fighter uh, frontline character if we were to use her in a gaming situation but a good example of someone who's not just uh, oh I picked the pocket of the uh, you know the orc kind mm-hmm. of character yeah and then you look at Ivrian and Ivrian's the the female main the, the female counterpart to Grey Mouser in the Unholy Grail and she's she's very weak yeah. and she's very fearful and they play that well in that story, and eventually she kind of rises to meet her fears and ends up being able to be pretty competent. But by the time we get to the final story, Ilmed and Lankmar, Vlana still feels very much like strong and empowered and powerful. But Ivrian seems like almost a different character. Uh, like she's so pampered and weak that I, 
it, it's hard to it's hard to see the connection between the Ivrian at the end of the Unholy Grail and the Ivrian at the beginning of Ilmed and Lankmar. Um, yeah, I, I tend to agree. Although, again, it's this sort of strange publishing history with the uh, Unho- Unholy Grail, which I believe was, although it was published in 62, was written somewhere around the late 50s. And at that point, uh, although Liber had been writing for a while, he was not, had not quite taken off. So he often was having to modify stories or uh, rewrite stories to suit his uh, you know, publishers or editors. And so, again, I believe this was a repurposed story that they basically said, well, this story's okay, but we'd have a hard time selling it. Why don't you turn it into a mouser story and then we can sell it? You know? Yeah. And, you know, considering that the Snow Women and Ilmed and Lankmar were both published in 1970, it makes sense that Valana is such a consistent character because both of the stories were written right around the same time. There, there, was, at least, there was at least eight years, most likely more than a decade, between the two Ivrian stories. It is surprising to me, though, that he didn't, I don't want to say he didn't put in more effort to make them, make the character feel consistent, but it just, it's just surprising to me that she's not more consistent. Uh, that's true. And uh, it's hard to remember, though, sort of the, mecha- and I'm not a writer, so the mechanics of writing and yeah. to what volume. I believe Liber was quite prolific. Oh, and, yes. And to what extent people were able to go back and sort of review their fiction, especially if you're a working writer. You know, every minute you spend, you know, not writing is a minute you're not making money in a sense. So that's true. That's um, a good point. To to go back and to do that um, is not necessarily uh, a viable option if you're getting paid by the word. Yeah, so fair enough. But yes, I I do agree that um, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call her irritating, but she sort of is a, sort of a drag on the story at, at certain points in Elmat and Lightmar. Yeah, I I agree with that. So looking at this collection, it's it's pretty clear to me that Gygax was very influenced by these stories when he was looking at his class creation and class development. Oh, certainly. There's definitely uh, more sort of distinct abilities that you could say, oh, here's a, you know, thief climbing the walls type thing, or um, here's uh, this kind of magic. So, yes, I, I certainly see that in there. Uh, yeah, we definitely have the fighting man here. We have the magic user. We have the the thief. Again, like Conan, though, the characters, like Fafford especially, Fafford is both a barbarian or a fighter and a thief. Right. And in this case, we also have Mouser, who was like an apprentice wizard who is definitely a capable magician in, in that first story who is also a thief. Mm-hmm. So I guess we, here we have uh, multi-class Absolutely. characters. And in fact, uh, how they were initially written up indeed is demigods. Um, and don't forget there was an element of the bard because Fafford sort of likes to declaim and sing and stuff like that. He's a singing skull. Singing a singing skull. So uh, in Deities and Demigods, actually Fafford's written up as a ranger since at that point they had not created the barbarian class yet. Oh, that's true. Um, and he is a... Uh, Oh, yeah, I just pulled it up here. It's a 15th level ranger, a 13th level thief, and a 5th level bard. There you go. And And then Mouser is an 11th level fighter, a 3rd level illusionist, and a 13th level thief. There you go. So uh, both fascinating characters in their own right. Um, And, uh, yeah, you could not sort of encompass them within the sort of single class structure. Uh, Certainly it would be very fascinating to see what happens when the Dungeon Call Classics Lankmar set comes out, how they sort of... um, sort of break the niches of the, uh, the ki- that they're created within the, the mainstream Dungeon Call Classics game for the Fafford and Greymaster characters and the uh, Nawan setting in general. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. I'm not, I'm not sure when it's going to be out, but I, I, I was an eager backer of that Kickstarter back when that was uh, being Kickstarted, and I'm very excited to see what comes out. Absolutely. And uh, I guess the other element is Lankmar itself is sort of the prototypical fantasy city yes. of, uh, you know, the high and the low, the, mm-hmm. the, the dark and the, the dark and the light. Um, I believe Greyhawk City itself was based on Lankmar, and certainly anyone who's played any of the other classic game settings like City State of the uh, yep. Invisible Overlord or something like that will certainly mm-hmm. recognize elements of Lankmar. Oh, no doubt. And in Waterdeep, it's definitely there as well. In, uh, in Punjar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, although I will have to say that Lankmar is not portrayed as a sort of prototypical medieval Western European city. It definitely has more of a sort of uh, 
Mediterranean feeling. That's true. Sort of the, you know, they mentioned the, the, the black toga and stuff like that. And it's quite close to the Near East. Right. And uh, people have actually said that, you know, whatever is the prototype idea of the big city in your mind is Lankmar, wherever you're coming from. And I, I believe also uh, we, we mentioned that Liber had traveled around the country and lived in various spots. I believe he also had lived in the Bay Area for a long period of time, too. So mm-hmm. sort of the sort of uh, libertine nature, the anything-goes nature of the Bay Area, I think would certainly have influenced Lankmar as well. Yeah, Lankmar definitely has the feeling of a city that's on the crossroads. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what, what else, Jeff? Uh, well, we've got the mind. Thieves Guild. Oh, the absolutely. Thieves Guild is a major player in Linkmar. And I'm not aware of the Thieves Guild being a concept in any other fiction other than Liber. At least, I, I should rephrase that. I'm not aware of the Thieves Guild being a concept in fiction prior to the Fafford and Greymaster stories. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if Liber came up with this idea or not, but it's definitely something that uh, Gary Gygax latched onto and has become a major trope in uh, in fantasy role playing, especially in urban settings. Mm-hmm. I, I recall actually also in the sort of. Uh... Let's say in these early 80s, there was a small Canadian company, whose name I forget, that actually produced a whole series of, I don't know if they were called supplements, or it became its own game. Basically, a Thieves Guild. It was a subscription series, and uh, so you you all played Thieves, as opposed to playing different classes, and then you, your jobs were all heists and, you know, those kind of adventures. And so that um, those are quite rare now. I don't think I've seen one in print for over 20 years. Um, but certainly that was very evocative to the people who were creating the game, and they really latched onto that too. So I think there's um, the, the Thieves Guild idea and the Lankmar idea are, are, are uh, very powerful. Yeah, and the heist as the um, premise of the, the adventure is a lot of fun. I was at, uh, oh, what, what, what was it? That was at GaryCon. I was at GaryCon, and I had signed up for one of Harley Stroh's DCC adventures, and uh, it was an adventure he was running called The Heist, and it was precisely what it sounds like. There were the, the, the characters were gathered together and were trying to steal gems out of a vault. And um, it, was, it was a really fun adventure. Um, we, and it ended up being, I think, two clerics and two thieves are the characters that we ended up picking. I don't know. It's 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 a fun it's a fun structure for an like not everything has to be a dungeon crawl. Absolutely, and, and not everything needs to be resolved by. Uh, especially, I think DCC rewards us pretty well by not saying that everything is through killing a monster, yeah. but you know, just the uh, by encounter. And certain other systems are, are purely, especially for example, Lamentation of the Flame Princess goes back to the original D and D idea where your experience is. 90% from the treasure that you bring back and not from, uh, you know, the monsters you slay or, you know, doing this heroic deed or that heroic deed. So um, I think uh, certainly if you are playing a, this kind of setting, you want to emphasize a slightly different reward structure, uh, whether it's in experience points or, you know, whatever people may actually, physical objects that the characters might haul away, then uh, maybe just, you know, oh, I go here and I, I kill this guy and I roll the body because that's certainly not what uh, Fafford and the, the mouser are doing. And speaking of killing monsters, um, there's, there's another connection here to the Conan stories in that at least in this collection of stories, we didn't really encounter great mythical beasts from mythology or from just pure imagination. Uh, the, I mean, the, there, there certainly was in Ilmed and Lankmar, there's a sorcerer, and then he summons a black smog, and from the black and, and the black smog creates a um, a cover with which these like rats come up and end up eating Vlana and Ivrian. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Uh, <laughs> this actually reminds me of the story that actually got me to stop reading H.P. Lovecraft for a while, which was um, Dreams in the Witch House. It kind of mm. reminded me a little bit of the Brown Jenkin in the okay. Dreams of the Witch House. Yeah. And I believe actually, I was reading this introduction that. Um, to take this back full circle for a minute, and then I'll come back to your point, is that um, when uh, Liber was first writing the Fafford and Grey Mouser stories, he wrote them actually as historical fiction. Oh. And uh, Lovecraft actually read them, and he says, no, 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 make it fantasy. It's, it's good. And so uh, he actually uh, then took it to the created Lankmar and Nawan and, and, and took it in that direction and added magic. So there is actually a Lovecraft connection to Liber, which is not as well known as the Howard and Lovecraft uh, connection. I did not know that, and thank you, Lovecraft. There you go. Because so, I don't think I would have enjoyed these stories anywhere near as much as I do if these were taking place in 
old London town. Right, right. Um, yeah, and this has a feeling of all of its own, as you say. It's right about a crossroads. Maybe it feels like, I don't know, Byzantium or mm-hmm. Constantinople or, you know, Alexandria or someplace like that. It's got that sort of melting pot, mysterious smells and herbs and spices and, and people of all ethnic origins and, and uh, you know, physical types sort of just mixing together. Yeah. Um, and it certainly uh, is interesting. He, he has all that, but he's not leaning on uh, types mm-hmm. as much as uh, Howard was saying, oh, this is a, a Zingaran, they look like this, and this is a... But he does mention, oh, you know, the Mingles and these different groups. And, um, you know, they sort of have certain national characteristics, but they're not sort of ingrained necessarily in their physical types as yeah. much. Yeah. And looking at Dungeons & Dragons... It seems like for the most part, whether you're a player or an NPC or a monster, the magic system kind of works the same. Uh, granted, if you're a monster and you have some kind of a magical attack that you can kind of do at will, then that, that is different. But for the most part, you're kind of using the same magic system. Where I like in how in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's definitely a codified rule set for how a wizard works. But it does specifically say in the core book that magic does not work the same way necessarily for NPCs or for monsters. And I think that that kind of clarification uh, or or setting of intentions works really well if you're trying to do kind of a Fafford and Greymaster style of play. Because the kind of magic that the women in Cold Corner were performing was very different than the kind of white magic that uh, that Mouser's um, uh, mentor uh, Glavis uh, Rowe Rowe right. was was teaching him, and that's very different from the black magic that he ended up using later to get his revenge right. on Duke Janarl. Right. Uh, and yeah, like th- th- there's all these different kinds of magic systems at play. Yeah, and I think the flavor is terrific. Now, obviously, in a role-playing game setting, it's a little bit more difficult because uh, you kind of have to have a mechanical element to that. And so then do you create multiple mechanical elements or do you somehow create a flavor overlay that uh, lays over the same sort of mechanical system for all systems of magic? So that's a, uh, a big debate. And people, you can see that in the sort of family of fantasy role-playing games, everyone tackles that differently. Uh, I know, for example, in Crips and Things, which is a uh, swords and wizardry derivative that's specifically uh, meant to em- uh, emphasize swords and sorcery, that there is a, that element, as you say, of black magic and white magic, and then some spells that can be used by both types of musicians, which are called uh, gray magic. But every kind of magic has its consequences. But certainly in D&D, there's rarely any sort of... Uh, D&D as written, there's rarely any consequences for magic other than the spell failing to go off. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in uh, DCC and these various other systems, people have sort of maybe gone back to the literature and said, oh, you know, magic is just not to be trifled with. Yeah. And so I think that's fun, you know, fun element here. And, and certainly in the literature here, uh, in the library books, you know that every time they use magic, you know, there's always a price to pay. It might not be immediately present. But, uh, you know, it always somehow backfires on these guys. And speaking of that, there's actually one selection from the Unholy Grail I'd like to read that speaks to that really nicely. And this is right after uh, Grey Mouser has gone all Dark Willow and is trying to get his revenge on Duke Gennaro for, uh, for murdering his mentor, Glavis Rowe. None can use black magic without straining the soul to the uttermost and staining it in the bargain. None can inflict suffering without enduring the same. None can send death by spells and sorcery without walking on the brink of death's own abyss, aye, and dripping his own blood into it. The forces black magic evokes are like two-edged poisoned swords with grips studded with scorpion stings. Only a strong man, leather-handed, in whom hate and evil are very powerful, can wield them, and he only for a space." I love that. Good stuff. Good That's stuff. really cool. And I, I think it's fun how in the different Appendix N stories we're reading, how some of them take the distinctions between black and white magic very seriously, and there is very much a distinction. Or in the Harold Shea stories, they're talking about how the difference between black and white magic really is just how you're looking at it and what kind of morals you're what, what kind of moral code you're applying to how you're using the spell. It's true. interesting that there were different ways of viewing it. True enough, true enough. Uh, and I think that, again, that may reflect also, again, uh, Liber's uh, 
worldview and DeCamp. I think DeCamp, again, being sort of an engineer, science-y type guy, was looking at it as like, okay, well, science is, you know, pretty neutral. It's, you know, you can make an atom bomb or you can have a nuclear power plant, you know, whereas uh, Libra uh, got a flair for the dramatic. So he's looking at it from more from a dramatic point of view. I agree. And I, I don't feel like it's about morality with Liber because although black magic is very much magic that you're doing to harm people, it doesn't feel like Liber saying this is like good versus evil. It's just kind of safe, safe magic versus dangerous magic. Where it's interesting with DCC, how with DCC, if, if, we're, if that's how we're looking at it, then all magic is black magic because all magic is dangerous. Right, right. Uh, to the extent maybe even that Glavis Rowe is not necessarily, quote unquote, a magic user. It might be more of a cleric, although there's no deities. So it's because yeah. the magic we talk is very much hedge magic. It's, you know, herbs and doing this and taking your time. And helping the woodland animals. And helping the woodland animals. Yeah, he's very much, uh, you know, would not have been out of place at the beginning of Bambi, I guess. Uh, <laughs> although his name, he sounds like a Jack Vance character, Glavis Rowe. He that, does. That, you know. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Glavis Rowe of Mir. Yeah. I can see it. Right, right. Yeah, so... We'll talk about that in our next episode. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so how about uh, the actual last story and, and the, the meat of being in Lankmar itself? Oh, man. Such a good payoff. It takes us so long in the book to finally get to where they're both together. I can see why people, why some people would suggest reading them in publication order because it, although The Snow Women is a great story... And The Unholy Grail is a pretty good story. Um, Ilmed and Linkmar is fantastic. Absolutely. And like the, t- the energy that the, that the story has when the two of them together is just like electric. And I'm excited for so much more of that. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was great to finally have them together. Right. And I felt this one, in many ways, it had the whole, uh, the, just getting the setting, the urban environment, you know, the, the weird tavern that they live over, you know, the various neighborhoods and how Is they're called. Is it the Silver Eel? Silver Eel, right? Yeah. The various neighborhoods as they're called out. Um, mm-hmm. I can't, I don't recall the names. And there's Cheap Street and right. Horror Street. Right, and, right. And, um, or like Murder Alley. Right. That, that, that one I made up, but it's right. something like that. Right, right. Well, that's uh, maybe uh, Bruce Wayne, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I like also the, you know, the various uh, roles that people have in the Thieves Guild. You can be a beggar and, you know, they, they, that's how they disguise themselves. They disguise themselves as beggars when they do their raid on the Thieves Guild. And when their final raid on the Thieves Guild very, very much feels like a uh, straight up uh, raid on a dungeon because they go left here, you go turn right <laughs> here, you go here, you know, go up here. And, oh, there's the uh, guy he's waiting in his room, throw the knife at him, you know, go up to the magician there. So it very much has that sort of pace of just like a dungeon raid just going right in. And that first raid is a really great example of Liber's humor in the stories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm so I, I, it's turning. It turns out this is going to be a personal goal of mine to use my last name as a verb as often as possible on this <laughs> podcast. But uh, so we have Ivrian, who um, is um, we have Ivrian and Vlana together, and Vlada is totally goading uh, Fafford and Grey Mouser to go out and like get her revenge on the Thieves Guild. And, like, they've been drinking wine and, like, you know, they had their big heist earlier in the day. And uh, they're pretty they're pretty soused at that point. And they're like, sure, we'll do it now. And she's like, that's not a good idea. And like, no, no, it'll be fine. We'll just go and we'll, we'll just check it out. We'll just do some recon. And um, so they get out there and they just kind of, like, cover themselves with filth. And um, uh, which one is pretending to be blind? Uh, I believe that's um, I believe that's the mouser because I remember mouser's pretending to be blind and Fafford has uh, his leg tied up behind yes. him, so he's hopping around on a peg leg and then yeah. he has, has trouble getting it off later. Which is... and and he turns his sword into his like peg leg, right, they like peg... wrap it up right. so that like it's totally inaccessible and right. he's hopping around on one foot. Right, obviously a really bad idea for any kind of a recon mission into you know a space where you're pretending to be somebody who doesn't belong there. Right. Um, and of course, it goes about as well as you would imagine a plan. It's like when you when you're in D when you're playing D and D, uh, and you and all your players come up with like this amazing plan. This is totally going to work. And as soon as you show up there, it all just falls apart. Right, right. That brings us back to a theme that we're talking about, though. I still believe that you should not automatically punish players for uh, stupidity if it's creative stupidity. If, you, if, you, <laughs> if you'll allow me that term, you know, if it's done in the sense of fun and like, oh. 
you know, sort of a wily coyote kind of thing, then you should kind of let it go, go with it to a certain extent rather than just say, oh, no, they spot you right away and fill you full of arrows. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Absolutely. Because there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fun way and a not fun way to do that as the dungeon master. Right. And, you know, if your plan, if, if your really well thought out plan starts 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 to starts to go into action and then you realize that the that it really wasn't as well thought out as as, as it, because it becomes I'll give you a great example. So I was just in uh Andy Action's BX game and we had and we're we're currently doing the um steading on the, the setting of the hill giants. Yes. And setting of the hill giant chief. Steading of the hill giant chief. Thank you. Yeah. And uh from a previous adventure uh they have this this like flying skiff from the from Pharaoh, uh-huh. and we had decided that we were going to uh, to sneak up on them and uh, use some magic to like get them all to basically kill each other. Uh, but it, it didn't really occur to us that like it wasn't a good idea because here you've got this like slowly flying skiff coming towards the giants who and, like, uh, are really good at throwing rocks. Of course. <laughs> so as soon as we start doing our plan, and then Andy starts having the the, the hill giants throw boulders at us, we're like, oh. Oh yeah, <laughs> we didn't consider that aspect of it, <laughs> and that was still really fun though. That wasn't like a, an evil DM move right. because, like, as soon as he did it, it became very clear to us that, right. like, oh, we didn't think that part through. Right. <laughs> well, you know, again, if I was running as GM, I wouldn't have you just knocked out of the air and killed. I would run it sort of like Zero Dark Thirty, where you crash land in their compound, you know, and then you know have to sneak around the compound or something like that. So absolutely, yeah, yeah, we 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 weren't just knocked out of the sky. Like right. we we adjusted to the situation and right. ended up making it work, right. but I'm, it wasn't as foolproof as we right. thought. I know a certain number of GMs who sort of we just said, yeah, you know, your boat's knocked out of the air and you fall for a 20d6 damage and that's it, right? And that's that's not yep. the fun way to do it. And that's the not fun way, right. no doubt. So one of the things that I thought was really cool about this that I've never seen, that I don't recall ever seeing in a game, and I would like to see it included somehow, is at the end of The Snow Women, Fafford kind of goes into this like heroic trance and he's on his skis and he's going down and he's going to rescue Vlana. And when this happens, he is just a murder machine. And also it's like things that are hurting him aren't really hurting him. And somehow he just has this like, like supernatural, not like supernatural strength, but it just, it seems like adrenaline has kicked in um, and melded with kind of divine fate in a way that he seems to be moving forward with a, with, a, with a greater purpose. And then that happens again in Ilmed and Lankmar when after their kind of botched recon mission on the Thieves' Guild, they go back and then discover that Vlana and Ivrian had been murdered. And then they kind of go into that same like heroic trance where they go in there and now they're totally sober and they're little murder machines. Right, it's very uh, John Woo. John yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Totally, that's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. it's very like Hong Kong cinema. Right, right, there you go. Heroic bloodshed, there you go. Yeah, and like I know that you've got like the, the barbarian rage or something, yeah. but this did not feel like a barbarian rage to me because no. this did not feel like they were like out of control and if you stop them at any moment, they... But actually, but I'll, I'll dial that back a second yeah. because also while Fafford was in his murder rage, he ended up like like totally like murdering this like eight year old boy. Yeah, I think yeah, right, little beggar boy or something like that. You know, just cut him right down. That was uh, yeah, yeah. But so, it wasn't. It's not like your standard berserker uh, can't defend. You know, minus three to AC plus three to hit kind of situation. It's not yeah. that. It's um, it's it's a little. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's more it doesn't remind me of something like maybe the end of uh, Hard Boiled, John Woo, you know, where they're going through the hospital and pop up, pop up. Yeah. Uh, so. Or suddenly you're Uma Thurman and Kill Bill. Right. So there's collateral damage, but they they're they're moving with a purpose. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how you would like simulate the... maybe luck. I don't know how you would simulate that, or you know. I feel like you. I don't feel like you can really simulate that with the rules as written for any game that I'm aware of. I feel like it would have to be a totally new house rule or a totally new system. Uh, but I do think it would be neat to have a maybe like once per adventure when if all of the if all of the care if all the players agree. And the the judge also agrees that there's like some her, like some greater heroic purpose, and they've triggered something really kind of elemental in the characters' kind of created shared story that they can kind of go into like super mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I wonder. Um, 
Uh, it's like I, Mario with the mushroom. Right, right. I know that some games have sort of the sort of the mook rules. So basically, uh, while the opponents have sort of the full offensive abilities, they're basically run as if they only have one hit point. So that you basically yeah. can cut down. You know, the, the orc might be incredibly threatening, but he actually really only has one hit point. So you can cut down. You know, however many orcs you need, or uh, you can do a rule basically, whereas um, I think they have these cleave rules or smite rules, where basically, if you manage to cut down a character, you know, kill it with one blow, then you can keep on attacking until you miss or don't kill the character, you know, the opponent with one blow. So then you can, you know, basically get like 15 attacks until you miss or until you encounter a, a character that you can't kill in one blow. So that might be a way to sort of do that. I agree, and I hadn't thought of it that way because maybe it is something that, in, in in doing it that way, you totally could do it with uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeon Crawl Classics or a similar game like that, um, or like Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers. If if you as the as the dungeon master or or game master or whatever determines that this is that this battle is really important and they're really fired up for some reason and there's like a mob of them you can just determine for for the game that like okay the players don't need to know this but all these guys now have one hit point (laughs) until they get to the big boss right right and they can still have the same attacks and the same attack rolls and stuff like that because it's still always the risk of getting you know dogpiled by you know 40 kobolds or 40 barbarians or however it happens so um certainly you can do that and again you could do either the one hit point or the to sort of simulate the sheer velocity, uh, just let them keep on rolling attacks until they fail one, um, and then we're not just sort of locked into, like, this number of rounds, for example, right? So, you know, you get your action, you get all your actions until you stopped, and then then the opponent gets their action. And that sort of can, that can also sort of represent that sort of Han Solo chasing after the stormtroopers aspect of this, too, you know? And then he, start, <laughs> and then he come, turns around the corner, sees 30 of them, and starts running back the other way. So, <laughs> so I think there's an element of that in there. Totally. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you feel like we should uh, chat about before we wrap this up? Uh, well, I think uh, this is a rich vein, and there's at least five more books in this series, too. So I think that anything we need to discuss about uh, Fafford and the Grey Master, we'll be sure to get to at some point. So, uh, no, I think we're good today. Great. Well, you can always email us yeah. at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Again, that's appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. And, uh, Jeff, what are we reading next? Our next episode, episode four, will be on Jack Vance's The Dying Earth. And episode five will be on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Right. And there's no halfling hate on this podcast. (laughs) Okay, people. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the stacks. And read on. Read on. Read on.